that is an appropriate prayer um, in song to uh, in anticipation of hearing God's word. I, I, I trust you caught that in the lyric and praise the Lord for that. Romans chapter 14 this morning. Romans chapter 14. If you need a Bible to follow along with, our ushers are standing in the back and are more than ready and willing to give you a scripture to follow along with. If you just raise your hand real high, they'll see you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible on your device or maybe you possibly left it at home or in your car. Um, we're going to attempt to finish the chapter we began last week. And for those of you who are guests this morning, I would encourage you to go back on our church website, uh, gracechurchmentor.org, and, uh, and listen to really what was the foundation for the conclusion of this morning's sermon in relationship to how two groups of people get along in the local church. And by the way, uh, I really believe while we're all in Christ, and that's what makes this the most glorious place, everyone is the same positionally in Christ, there will always be two kinds of people in the church. There's always going to be the strong and there's always going to be the weak. Can the weak become strong? Yes. Can the strong become weak? Well, I suppose, understanding the context. Um, um, But the Bible never talks within the immediate context about either one moving positions. For whatever reason that may be, I don't, Paul doesn't address it. The assumption is here, all of us are always going to fall under one of those two categories. The summer, uh, another assumption from this text is both these groups of people are spirit-filled people. Because Paul gives them the title weak does not mean they're not right with God. Both these groups of people are reverent, God-honoring, word-saturated, growing people. And I think that's absolutely critical for us to remember and understand. Both are required to not just get along with each other. That's, uh, that's kind of understood. Uh, but there's a much more virtuous goal that they have here. Uh, and that is to keep themselves in the love of God. Remember, chapter 14 is really uh, the continuous overflow from chapter 12 and verse 9, where we're all asked to participate continuously in this holy love, and this holy love that is relational and passionate and commissional and responsive to human authorities is is a love that knows how to reach its community, and and when it's done reaching its community, or as it continues to reach its community, knows how to love itself well. And these two groups are asked to uh, continue to love one another well, and it's assumed that they will continue to get along. As Paul writes the Roman church, it's different than when he writes on somewhat of a similar topic in 1 Corinthians 8, the church of Corinth. Um, He was asking them to bring about a corrective there in Corinth, but here he's writing to a healthy church that he knows, and by the way, he's never visited this church. He's just assuming because of the nature of the makeup of the congregation that they could face the potential reality of not being able to get along well with one another. So the information that he's giving them here in Romans 14 is fire prevention information. This is how we prevent catastrophe, right? As 
I preach to you as our church family here, I want to let you know, I always assume that there will be strong and there will always be weak. But again, the emphasis is not merely on the strong and the weak. The emphasis is not merely on getting along. The emphasis is on what does the love of God look like? What does holy love look like in a congregation? So in a, in a congregation that's focusing on that holy love, uh, I don't want to be irreverent here, but but loving each other and getting along should just really kind of be the slam dunk. It shouldn't be the focus of a problem. Okay. So many uh, authors and so many pastors, when they preach through Romans 14, they really zero in on this idea of what it is, means to be weak and strong and what does it mean for the, for, the, for, the, for the strong not to misuse their liberty and for the weak not to be legalistic. I don't really think that's the primary or even secondary focus of this text. I think the assumption is here as Paul writes to them again is that these are not just folks imputed with the righteousness of Christ but they're growing gradually and they are sincerely loving each other but Paul knew that there could be coming a temptation in their future that they would need to be warned about so they could address it wisely, and so he does. And I think among a healthy group of people like you folks at Grace, uh, let's just take these admonitions, not as correctives, but as encouragements, exhortations to keep loving each other as you are because you're taught of God how to love one another as 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says, only increase more and more. Let's not rest on the laurels of having a healthy, loving church. Let's keep going. Let's keep growing because inevitably you're gonna have to pull out and unpack some of this information in your history here at Grace because if you're strong, you're gonna have a conversation for the week, with the weak that's gonna be a little bit awkward and you're gonna have to go back and you're gonna have to remember what's my primary duty here? And how do we play this out but do it together and come out of that conversation closer to the Lord and closer with one another rather than puzzled about what God expects and farther apart from each other. Okay. So, uh, since we had an emphasis on homiletics this morning, <laughs> let me review with you a very simple outline that we've given uh, this book. Last week we talked about the people of consideration, considerate people, and we defined the strong and the weak. Today we're going to continue on with the potential pitfalls for considerate people. What do we need to be looking out for? Not as watchdogs, but as discerner, discerning listeners. Let's prepare to understand what will come as potential pitfalls as considerate people. And that won't take long, and we'll move on to the principles of how we remain considerate. The principles of remaining considerate. And then we'll conclude this morning with some practical guidelines of maintenance. Right, some practical guidelines of maintenance. So let's talk here about the uh, potential pitfalls. And they're mentioned in verses 2 and 5. Uh, not difficult to understand. Um, let's remember as we head into the description of these potential pitfalls um, that everyone's greatest strength can become their greatest weakness if they're not careful. 
Remember we referenced last week as we concluded Romans 13, 14. We took the first part of the verse, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we gave a direct application to those who would be weak. For those who come out of religious conservatism, right, in this particular context of the, the smaller but more historically religious group at the Church of Rome, the Messianic Jews who had a tendency to hang on to those civil and ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law, right? For them, their tendency was gonna be to focus on the law rather than Christ. So Paul says here by way of segue, you make sure you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and to the strong, those who don't have issues fully trusting the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, who have no religious past, they're fully confident in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and making decisions and not being bogged down by various aspects of historic religiosity. To them, he says, make sure you give no occasion to your flesh. Because the tendency of those who are free and experiencing more liberty and not tied down to old religious paths, their tendency is it's going to be going a little bit too far. So make sure you're not giving any occasion to your flesh. And so he begins here by discussing the pitfalls, but primarily of the weak, the religious weak. And what does he say here in verse number two? He identifies one, one person has faith that he may eat all things, excuse me, that's the strong, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. If you get on to verse five, one person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. So in verse 5, he describes the weak first, and then he goes to the strong in reverse order of what he does in verse 2. And then he says, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. And that's a powerful phrase here, letting us know again that these people are not sinning. These people are growing, and they are sincerely growing. What Paul addresses as weak in this context, he's not addressing as wrong. We'll see that as we go along. And certainly what he's addressing as strong is not wrong. But both can become imbalanced. You notice in the context, he's not even saying those who aren't confident to eat meat are not right with God. Those who are confident to eat meat, are not out of fellowship with God. The assumption is here, look, you could be a born-again Christian and you could still be practicing as much as you could within this context, the ceremonial and the civic aspects of the Mosaic Code in your own life. And Paul's saying, you're not wrong. You're not sinning. Just make sure that when you do those things, and these people weren't, these people weren't legalists. They weren't saying that as I desire to hold on to a day, and as I desire not to eat meat, that that's saving me. They're not saying that. He's saying, well, just make sure if you're going to honor a day, or if you're not going to eat meat, you don't, by the same token, feel that's making you more spiritual either. It's really fascinating to me. He doesn't say stop doing those things. He only does in principle towards the end of the chapter that we'll see either today or next week. 
So for those who are Messianic Jews in our, in our congregation, right, uh, some of you have friends who still, as much as our culture would allow them to do, practice various aspects of the Mosaic Code that biblically we're no longer required to practice. And those folks don't believe that they're becoming closer to God or more holy by doing so. They just do it because it's a culture. It's part of their custom. Paul would say, don't stop. Enjoy it. Remember all those customs and laws, what they were intended to do. Take great solace that you're in Christ. You don't need them anymore. And they're certainly not drawing you closer in your sanctification to Christ's likeness. But So the pitfalls could be food or days. We'll put it that way. Food or days. And we don't want to let either become a pitfall. So when you start thinking about that, apply that to when we're discipling each other. Because some of us, you may be a person that's strong that has an irreligious past, and you might be confident in your walk with Christ. And I think about that in the context of our church. You might be discipling a weak person who has a deep religious past, who still might be struggling with holding on to various forms of their mosaic history. If we're going to be pure with the context, I think the weak here are exclusively tied to something historically biblical so I want to be very careful not to make a broad brush sweeping analysis that, that the weak in the church could be formerly non-biblical religious people, non-Jews, because there's some things in your former religious pasts that just need to go completely. And holding on to those might be a temptation for you, and that's normal, but God's grace will bring you out of that, but the particular reference here are to biblical Jews. Okay. And I would say biological Jews in their progeny, in their family tree, you could be practicing those things and, and be tempted to make those things the focus of your walk with God. And, and that could be a pitfall. On the contrary, uh, those of you who are strong uh, have a, a tendency uh, to address these folks who are weak with disrespect, and, and that's going to be addressed here in just a little bit. So what are some exhortations to both? You remember chapter 14 and 1 and 15 and 1. Except those who are weak in the faith. The word except is very clear in the grammar of the New Testament, it means to literally receive someone like you would into their home. It was also understood in the first century as receiving someone as a citizen into your own country. Adopting them as a citizen. Or adopting someone into your home. Come on in and make yourself at home. Welcome to our country. That's the idea here. Fully accept them. And I think the emphasis here on the phrase, the one... Except the one, the word one here, just for your understanding of the text, is interchangeably used two different ways. 
The one can refer to one group, the weak, or one group, the strong. And particular to the immediate context within the verse, sometimes it could be a direct address to the person within that one group. Right? Here, I really believe in the early part of this context that it's in reference to the group, the one group or the other. Okay. To the ones who are weak in the faith, the grammar here teaches us that this is literally one who is weak with respect to faith. And the faith here refers not directly to one's salvific faith or their salvation experience, but to one's convictions about what their faith has borne out in their life. And that's why acceptance here is so critical and why holy love should be so demonstrable. Why? Because these people are sincerely growing. They're weak in respect to their growing faith. This is convictional to them. This is near and dear to their heart. Both groups, strong and weak. One author said the weak in the faith are not lesser Christians than the strong in the faith. They're simply those who do not think their faith allows them to do certain things that the strong feel free to do. Paul goes on to say here, accept them, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his options, on, on his opinions. If we were to understand this in that day, this is how it would have been explained in our 21st century culture. Don't accept them for the purpose of offering criticisms on their non-essentials. In other words, for the strong, oh yeah, I'll disciple that weak person. I'll let them know what's up, you know? And uh, I'm gonna let them know that what they feel is born out of their faith is really kid foolery. And boy, after three times of studying the Bible together, they'll get me, all right? They got it. It's not at all. You're going into that relationship with complete and utter reverence. That they are, you're assuming they are walking with God. And regardless of their conclusions that you may disagree with, you're walking on sacred holy ground. So your purpose is not to accept them so that you can talk about your opinions that are probably non-essential points of discussion. Okay? So it's probably not even good in a disciple-making context to discuss the points of weakness or thus points of strength unless your progress of your Bible study brings it up. This is all Paul's point. Don't make it a focus. The focus will get to you in a little. It's clear. It's crystal clear. Some of you have heard the, the cliche that if you're going to be a, a good spiritual leader, you want to make sure that you don't, you know, major on the minors and Minor on the majors. It's in essence, what he's discussing here. Let's not offer criticisms on non-essentials. The emphasis is on the acceptance, and that acceptance is uh, is a reality because of the positional righteousness that both groups own, and not. Merely their practical growth. 
And again, the assumption of growth is there. One author said uh, he would translate this phrase literally this way, do not receive him just because you want to criticize his scruples. We may see someone who's a stickler on things of their former religious past that don't matter one way or the other. And our tendency is, is to call them out and to criticize them for wasting time on something that's a non-essential. And Paul's saying here, don't do that. He's like, don't do that at all. It's not a topic of discussion. Don't champion your weakness by saying, I get to honor a day or a food habit. And don't champion your liberty. Don't lord your liberty over another saint. Just keep growing. Just keep growing. And for some of us, some of these phrases might really cause, especially those of you that have been saved for decades, you might be feeling a little pull in your heart right now. Because you may have been reared in another church than grace and you were taught to champion your liberty by not accepting the weak but calling them out. And if you were weak, you might have been reared in a church that had a tendency to train everybody to look and act just like you. And if they weren't, there's no way that they could be saved. And Paul's saying, stop it. Just stop it. It's not even a point of conversation. And he will tell us what we should be talking about here as we, as we go along. He says in verse 3, and then he reiterates it in verse 10, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. Now this is a direct address to the strong. We understand that. It literally means to reject with contempt. It's an attitudinal rejection with disdain and rolled eyes. There's no need to look down on the weak, especially if they're struggling over something that in their past was sincerely biblical. Okay. To the weak, he says, in the same verses, second half of 3 and 10, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. I find it really interesting here. There's two different verbs for each group. To the strong, he says, don't regard with contempt. In other words, don't reject with disdain. And to the weak, he says, you're going to have another attitudinal response, different from the strong. To the weak, he says, don't judge. It's a different verb. And your weakness is, you're going to want to pronounce doom. Right? Or really deny someone's rights to salvation. If they don't do it this way, how can they be saved? So your tendency is, you're not a legalist. You don't want to be even close to a legalist. Paul deals with that extreme in Galatians. But again, Rome's not there yet. But understand your tendency is, is to going to judge someone's character by mere external means. Let's not do that. And both groups are to guard against attitudes which are the result of unbiblical thinking. Okay. So let's continue on here and consider some first-time instruction with simplicity 
with which it was meant to be given. Consideration of one another is the fruit, as we've already said, within our greater context of holy love. Consideration offers clarity to the believer who can't seem to immediately apply where they're at in their progressive growth to such practical matters. I think it would be good at this juncture to write alongside these first several verses to cross-reference in the margin of your Bible, your notes, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 11. We mentioned that a little bit earlier. And the purpose for mentioning that was the Thessalonian believers, like the Roman believers, were being taught of God how to love one another. And he tells them to increase more and more, but verse 11 of 1 Thessalonians 9 gives us three fruits of holy love. And they are this, right? Study to be quiet, mind your own business, and work hard with your hands. And I praise the Lord that grace is a lot like Rome. We're not putting out fires in those areas anymore like we used to before we became more and more of a disciple-making church. What is, John, what is Paul saying in 1 John 4.11? People who are loving God well will not make issues out of non-issues. Sounds like Romans 14, right? They won't make issues out of non-issues. They'll mind their own business. And what does minding your own business mean? It's mind your own business. <laughs> and what does that mean? Mind your own business. And the text says within 1 Thessalonians 4, the last phrase there is, is you'll have a good work ethic. And that work ethic is not in reference to inside the body of Christ. That's in reference to your vocational work ethic. Lovers of God, their holy love is demonstrated in the community 40 hours a week. They represent their Savior through their work ethic. So anyways, the Roman people, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, were folks that were not making issues out of non-issues. Uh, they weren't like the Corinthian or the Galatian people had become. Uh, they were working hard to mind their own business, and I'm confident that they had a tremendous testimony regarding their work in town because the Apostle Paul never brings a corrective about their vocational work uh, in all 16 chapters. He's basically saying what we saw in Romans 8, 33 and 34. If it is God who justifies, then who among you, weak or strong, is going to choose to condemn? Anyone want to stand up and, and do that? None of us would want to do that. He continues to the weak in verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord has made him able to stand. I think now the singular use of the word you is to the individual within the group. Who are you within the group of the strong or the weak to decide that you can pick out another person in the other group and say, for the weak who consider the strong to be weak 
It is the Lord who transformed the life of the strong by grace, not man. So it is the Lord who will keep him standing. It is never the mere standards of a man that keep him in a right standing with the Lord. And Paul's reminding both sides here. It's not your liberty that keeps you in right standing, and it's not your weakness that keeps you in right standing. You're both in Christ. The mere discernment of men, the mere opinion of man about another is not that which exclusively causes another to keep standing or fall. God caused him to positionally stand by grace alone, and it will be God's grace and love that will compel him to continue to stand as we minister to each other, regardless what group we may be in. In Christ, man is free from the law. We understand that. In the environment of God's grace, the primary agent to protect the man exercising his liberty is God in Christ by his grace. It appears to us, to me, that Paul assumes that the weak in the text will always be concerned about the misuses of the liberty of the strong, and Paul's right. He's right. That's why we referenced chapter 13 and verse 14 earlier, and the tendency of the weak is to overreact and to convince the strong to live within their man-made parameters so it becomes easier for the weak to discern maturity of the strong. And Paul says no to both, be careful. Paul says to the weak, put on Christ, and he says to the strong, make sure you give no occasion to the flesh, let's just keep growing. So what are some principles here that we can look at real quickly here in relationship to mutually being considerate, loving people? Right? I believe Alva J. McLean does a tremendous job with this particular portion of Scripture. He highlights several things here that are the same among both groups. And I want to highlight here what he highlights. He says in verses 6 and the first part of verse 7, don't forget we have the same aim. We have the same aim. The second part of verse 7 and the, through verse 9, don't forget we all have the same Lord. We have the same aim and we have the same Lord. In verses 10 to 12, we all have the same judgment. The same aim, the same Lord, and the same judgment. I, I love to read books uh, when I have the opportunity. And uh, a book I recently, uh, almost all the way through, I was given uh, seven more books by you folks in the last two weeks to read. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading uh, those 4,368 pages <laughs> as soon as I can. Thank you for your offering of those books. I'm, 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 they'll be very helpful to me, I'm sure. Um, this book was just called One, O-N-E, and it's, a, it's, uh, it's really defining the entrepreneurial spirit and by examining several multi-billion dollar companies in our current existence who all became quite large because the founding CEOs, the founding fathers of those organizations decided to work on one thing and make it great. 
Now, all their companies have multiple products now, right? And their consumer base is much larger, but it all began by focusing on one thing. And if I was to ask you, who do you think some of those entrepreneurs are? You'd be able to start telling me, right? There was one guy that really liked a hamburger, right? There's another guy that really liked a computer or the idea of what a computing could do, right? There's another guy that really liked a cup of coffee, right? Your mind would run crazy. But the whole book is on the stories of these people focusing on one thing. And there's a lot of fruit from focusing so determined on one thing. And, And Paul says here to both groups, with the same tenacity, let's focus on these singular things. This is what our minds should run to. Instead of getting bogged down with your liberty and your weakness, let's run here. Let's remind ourselves of these things. What does he say in verse 6 and verse 7? He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. And then he mentions thanks to God in verse 6. And he does, again, the same way a few phrases down. For those who's eating, he does it for the Lord. And he gives thanks to God for the one who lives for himself and not not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. The same aim. That's why I love our church mission statement. We all exist to glorify God by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of what? Christ's likeness. Keep your eyes on the Lord. That's why I love 1 Thessalonians 5.18. The more we do that, the more of a thankful congregation we become. Keep your eyes on the Lord and stay thankful. The tendency is, and our humanness, is to micromanage the weak and micromanage the strong. And he's saying, stop micromanaging and look at the macro management. (laughs) Get your eyes off at the nitty gritty and get your eyes on the Lord. And those kind of people will be thankful. Paul's telling us that they are. Both groups are thankful people. Thankfulness effervesces out of their person. That's when we know that we're walking with God, always keeping our eyes on him, always growing, and the fruit of that is thankfulness. None of these two groups wanted to live for themselves. We couldn't die for ourselves, so why would we wanna live for ourselves? We wanna live for him who died for us, right? If we can't die for ourselves, why would we want to live unto ourselves? Every one of our actions affects another person. And this group of weak and strong people were incredibly conscientious of that fact that we'll study as we continue to go through this this text. We live to the glory of God on earth until we are in the presence of his glory in heaven and everything is done unto him with thanksgiving. 
We have the same Lord. We all have one Lord, whether weak or strong. And we've read those phrases already. For if we live, we live to Him. If we die, we die to Him. Why? Because we are His. Verse 9 says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord, both of the living and of the dead. It's important to remember that Paul never addresses the weak or the strong. Again, it's having poor doctrine. The emphasis is on having the same Lord with the same disposition of thanksgiving. And when they were together as a corporate family, the Lord and what He's done for them and the mutual growth in Him and His Word was of primary importance. And they all remembered together that they had the same judgment. Verses 10 to 12 is very clear on that. Look at the beginning of verse 12. So then each one of us, again, there's a particular reference to the ones within the two groups. No one's going to stand together. The weak aren't going to stand before the Lord together and the strong aren't going to stand before the Lord together. They're all going to stand by themselves. And when you're before the Lord, weakness and strength really doesn't matter at all. So he's saying, since it's not going to really matter to the Lord in that hour of judgment, make sure it doesn't matter to you now. Keep focused on the Lord and keep growing each other. Don't let these non-essentials be always topics of conversation. Keep growing and let the Spirit of God organically work in your hearts. Verse 10, why would you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Addressing again the, the weak first and then the strong. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The same judgment. So as we wrap up this morning, can we make sure as a church that we continue to focus on these truths of similarity. Discipline your minds unto these similarities so we don't ever get to the point where we're divided over non-essentials. Keep growing. Keep growing. Keep growing. And next week, we're going to give a whole sermon just to the fourth and final point in our outline uh, because I really believe it deserves a full 40, 45 minutes for our help. Okay? Let's pray together.